Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, we will begin, and we'll let people come in. Let people come in as they do. Okay, here we go. So, good good evening, and tonight, welcome to this lecture series, which is called "The Orthodox Jews of Galicia in the Modern Era, 1772-1942." Tonight is the second lecture out of six. Okay, which is entitled "The Jewish Civil Wars in Galicia, 1790 to 1859." Part one. Originally, I planned this for one thing, but then it spilled into two parts. I know you're shocked to hear that. <laughs> and um, as you can see, this is being sponsored by the Birnbaums in the honor of Ken's parents, memory, I should say, of Ken's parents. And um, are they from Galicia, by any chance? There you go, okay. And then, as you can see, also by the Obersteins, this is a more serious, if for a foolish limit for their granddaughter who's facing a serious health challenge. So we hope that um, everything, all our fields together, and this, whatever we do tonight, should help in the cause of giving her a, a complete and total recovery. Okay, now let's get down to brass tacks. Um, the story tonight, which is going to pick up from what we did yesterday, has to do with Jewish culture. As it developed uniquely in Galicia over 150 years, because I told you, the whole part of Galicia from beginning to end is a little bit less than 150 years, then it was over. Uh, it's a complex story, and in some ways it seems like a modern story in terms of Jews switching from a culturally monolithic block to a fractionated set of disparate blocks. So, of course, what I mean by that is the modern era. Used to be all the Jews, even though they had different customs and things like that, were on the same page in terms of fundamentalism, nomianism, autonomous courts of communities and cultural insularities, I always say, and I'll put in the board. But that consensus cracked, as we all know, around 1800 or so, French Revolution in the aftermath. <clears throat> and Galicia is one of those places where it happened. So this is a story tonight about the fate of one of those four, which is number four, cultural insularity. Right? It's not exactly a fight about fundamentalism or nomianism, that had a different play out in Galicia, but it certainly is a story about the appropriateness and the place in Jewish life, if there is one, for cultural insularity, and there was. Let us look at this complex phenomenon of Jewish cultural insularity, which after all implied that a certain zone of life was set aside for Jews to rule. So if Jews lived as they always did if not exactly in physical ghettos, but something equivalent to that, autonomous courts and communities in which they kind of ruled themselves internally. And like I say, as far as the government is concerned, the main concern was delivered to cash in this estate, collected collectively from the community. So if you have a community, for argument's sake, of 2,000 people, they all calculate how much this would be worth, 
And if you tell me it's $750,000, I want to see that money in one lump sum on this estate. And how you run your own lives and your regulations of the synagogues and education, if there is any, and burial societies and all that other business, leave it to yourself. That means that the Jews ran their own internal affairs in that regard. You see? So cultural insularity implies there's a zone of Jewish self-government. Historically, the Jews is very interesting. Although they were always externally subject in the diaspora, they're always externally subject, always with some government in whose country they were residing, but were always internally not subject, which is interesting. Their personal lives, by and large, were not regulated by the state. It's a common misconception. That's something modern. As I just said before, you pay your money, maybe the king needs a little bit more, this, that, and the other, but not that much more than money. Maybe he wants you to, to, to contribute to trade in some fashion or another. And beyond that, take care of your own affairs. Matter of fact, the opposite. I hope to do this series I told you before next in the three weeks about the basins and their coercion and all the rest of it. A lot of countries in Europe and elsewhere used to say to the Jews, run your own darn stupid courts and keep all your stupid cases out of our docket. We're overloaded as it is. I don't have to deal with every two stupid Jews that fight over 15 cents. You understand? Because that's who we are, you know. So you handle all that stuff. Uh, that's the mentality. And that meant that internally within the Jewish community, <clears throat> they were not subject to anything. So even in a country where the Jews were heavily oppressed, let's say, for example, Rome and the papal states in the time of the popes, when the Jews went into shul by themselves, they had an endowment. They said, ah, hell with the guy, the hell with the pope. This, and, you know, they talk however they want. Because their own territory, internally, they weren't subject. Think of the Hasidim, for example. So this result, as I always say, of a perfect storm, in which on the one hand, the host society had condescension and couldn't care less, had contempt for what goes within the Jewish community because it wasn't even a culture then. To name it some form of gypsies. You know, the, the foreign nations always looked at the Jews with a, culture, uh, with a cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, they looked down on them like there's some racially inferior group. On the other hand, they said, watch out. If you don't keep them down, they're going to come and take over the country, which is a contradiction in terms, but that's what it was. So nowhere was this more true than the old kingdom of Poland and Lithuania that we've been talking about before Galicia was formed. So if this is the old kingdom of Poland, this is a happy hunting grab of Jewish autonomy in which they really ruled their own roost, except in those areas where the Gentile powers cared, which weren't many which weren't many, okay? Both sides were happy with this arrangement for many centuries. No one was more happier than the rabbis. <laughs> they get to be little kings and rulers in their own countries. The Jews participated, mind you, vitally in the economy. So I don't mean cultural insularity like the Amish. That's a, something always has to be remembered. Even today, you can have Hasidim or something like that. They're still operating business on 47th Street and the equivalent thereof. They know what's going on in the world. you got to know what's going on in the world in order to stay on top of business. Imagine some Hasidic guy who's, making, who's real from, is making money in Muncie on uh, internet trading. There are such people. you got to know what's happening in the markets and all the rest. It's, it's funny because on the one hand, when he steps away from the computer, if he's not a hypocrite, then he shuts all that down mentally. But when he's in business, he knows what's going on. 
So that's how it always was in the old kingdom of Poland and elsewhere. The Jews were major players within the economy. And so, for example, you had to know, just for common sense, I don't care how culturally insular you are, you have to know for basic business purposes if there's a war coming anywhere over here, don't you? Or if there's a famine in some part of the country, because that affects the business. Or if there's some uprising against the nobles over here, because that's going to affect the business. So the Jewish communities, Yiddish-speaking, introspective, all the rest of it, well, when you went to Shul, you went to the Mikvah, they're hawking like crazy on the 6.30 news, <laughs> the equivalent of what that is. This is how the Jews operated, okay? So they participated vitally in the economy, but they consumed their own culture, and they didn't consume Poland's culture. They didn't read Polish books. They weren't interested in that and the other. Now, how did this work out? How did Jews acquire life skills without formal secular education of any sort, as we define it today? How did they get the three R's and all the rest of it? So let's look, think about that. Literacy they had right, in Hebrew and Yiddish. That's a fact. That's an important part of being able to operate if you're literate. The state of literacy among the Jews was fairly good, at least among the men. And uh, there were people who were illiterate or functionally illiterate like there always are. I had people like that walking around in Baltimore too. But... Uh, by and large, most people went through the system, you know, could read and write, and you understand how important that is in terms of running a business, okay? Now, I'll say it again. <laughs> Their situation was better in Baltimore public, City Public Schools in terms of literacy rates. What about math and science? Well, how did somebody in the 1500s or the 1600s, 1700s learn math? The answer is, you learned business, math acquired it organically. He told he to go into business. Pretty soon he learns by trial and error. He gave away three pennies. He came back with this, you know, oops, I guess this is not a good idea. And so your basic arithmetic, your basic math, and as you grew up, and if your business was more successful, you organically had to learn things like multiplication, division, and things of that nature to the degree you needed. And that's how they did it, okay? In other words, from business and not from books. That's how our ancestors Lashkenaz against us is operated. And I'll tell you again, these guys can be successful as business people, even though they didn't have what you and I would call a formal education. I mean, there were some Hebrew math books all throughout the centuries. There were, but they were not widely read. They're certainly not part of the curriculum of the Cheder or the Shi or anything like that. And so it's just interesting. What about science? Science is zero, okay? Because after all, a Jew would say in the year 1700s, had his knowledge of science of the 18th century, or perhaps you mean Maimonidean science, the science of the 11th century. How does that help you make a living? You get it? The guy's a businessman. Life was about paying bills. You're, you're, you're in the fur trade. You're in the wax trade, the animal trade, this, that, and the other. You handle, you hawk. You don't have to know physics. And you don't really care about astronomy. You just want to know when's Rosh Hashanah, you know? That's all. Literature? You gotta be kidding. The Jews weren't interested in learning correct Polish or any other language, so forget about literature. They only went, in the old good old days, just Yiddish and Hebrew to some degree. They're not interested in any other language. Okay? Now the Polish Jews were in the mass interested in Ashkenazic Jewish literature. It was just pretty big. But by the time you're talking about, let's say, Eastern Europe and the Kingdom of Poland in the 15th, 16th, 1700s. 
as I've said many times in my other talks, this had evolved in the high culture mode, in the middle culture mode, into Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. That's what it was. That's the, the world of yesteryear. For the overwhelming group of people, your Hebrew literature is what you call Torah literature. Torah literature is the Talmud Bavli. <laughs> you know, not the Yushalmi, not the Tosefta, and so forth. That was the literature. Those Polish Jews, the few, including Galicia, who were interested in Jewish literature, I repeat, Jewish literature, other than Gemar, 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 these were the early Maskil. So the Haskalah doesn't necessarily mean someone's a Machal Shabbos or anything like that. Quite the contrary. This means that they're not so narrow in their definition even of what Jewish is. Okay? It's not that they weren't from, it's just that they were interested in more than just Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. Sometimes this meant interest in the literature of the Golden Age of Spain, which included introductions to pre-modern philosophy. So, for example, a very well-known Moscow from guy of the 1700s is Yisrael Zamosh, who has a famous commentary, that's a very religious book, and he's a classic commentator over there on the Kuzri. Now, these are books originally written in Arabic in the Golden Age of Jews in Spain. They do bring you up to date to some sort of philosophy of 500 years ago, because <laughs> right? these guys lived in 1700. And by the standards of Poland, that made you very advanced in terms of your secular knowledge. I'll say it again. So if somebody's writing a commentary on the Chobos Alvobos, it's not exactly what you call a reform rabbi. You see my point? And this guy, Yisrael Zamosh, it's a coffin with him, Zamosh, was the rabbi of Moses Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn was a Yaki who was born not far from Berlin and ended up in a yeshiva in Berlin. I said a yeshiva in Berlin. It was culturally insular. You can only read uh, Hebrew and, and German Yiddish, Yiddish But he met this guy, and he said, there's more out there than just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. And he expanded his mind and maybe taught him a language I don't remember, <coughs> maybe taught him German or something. And then Mendelssohn rolled on his own. <coughs> you see? So both of these people were Shomer Shabbos, as we call them today. Both of these people believed in Torah Sinai. But by the standards of the 18th century, they would be muscular because they're interested in more than just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Okay? Uh, now, there were people who picked and chose among those secular sciences in which they were interested. The Vilna Gon, for example, lived in, in the 18th century, right? as we kind of know was interested in math and science, completely disinterested in philosophy, although he knew it. When I say he knew it, notice he knew the, the, the Maimonides, God for the Perplex, and the Chos, all of us those kind of books. He didn't like it, it's not his nature. Okay, he didn't like metaphysics, because it calls into question the truth of God. But he, he loved math in various forms. He loved such sciences as astronomy and so forth in various forms. Uh, so what do you call the Vilna going to Moscow? Now, sometimes, I repeat, sometimes, this is all leading up to 1772 when Galicia is formed. Sometimes the Haskalah meant knowledge of European languages and culture. Not only in Hebrew, no Yiddish. You can read other things. Again, that doesn't make you a Machal Shabbos. Uh, usually math and science books. Not Shakespeare. Nobody's interested in Shakespeare. But in the original, non-Hebrew translation, 
So that's what makes you really unusual. You can actually read a science book in Latin or Italian or German or something like that. Okay? But all these people, and there weren't many of them, especially in Eastern Europe, were weirdos. For the masses, high culture was identical with Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. Middle culture was identical <coughs> with the Chumash and Rashi and Yiddish things like the Tzanarena that we talked about last year. Those kind of books, okay, of yesteryear. The Tzanarena has been made fun of, but not properly so. That was a favorite book of women, but a lot of people read it also. It basically was like a Mam Loes, you know. You can see a lot of information on the Parsha. And it's very well selected, but it was in Yiddish. Okay? Such were the parameters of this culture, which prized its isolationism, like the Satmars do today. So I'll say it again. Didn't mean the guy was primitive in the economic sense. The same guy I'm talking about, who can't read Polish and doesn't want to, who's not interested in Shakespeare and maybe not even science, is good in the cattle trade and different. He lives in a big house with a lot of servants. Does quite well, thank you very much. One's got nothing to do with the other. That's my point. Now, um, these people didn't see any value in outside cultures. They were happy in their own mental ghetto, which to them was not a mental ghetto, but it was a beautiful garden. The only thing they wanted was a good parnosa to give them the opportunity of spending enjoyable time in their own garden. Remember that famous thing, the Garden of Finzi Cantini? They live in their own garden, they're pretty. Has nothing to do with the outside world. You try not to. Okay? Now, um, and in the perfect storm that I described of the Jeshvas Politel, the old Polish kingdom, they encountered no opposition to all this. The Poles felt the same way. Now comes the Austrians, and they take over in 1772. It's a different kind of government. They want centralization. And most importantly, they want micromanaging, control freak type approach. The Jews were now faced with a new reality. Whereas Poland had been an old-fashioned state, which is why they went under, Austria was a new state, or at least was trying to become a new state. As I told you yesterday on the Empress Maria Theresa, here's her Jewish top advisor. Of course, he converted to Catholic, otherwise it wouldn't happen. So this is when Sonnenfels. So he was a very brilliant intellectual of that type. His father started as a chazan, a small shul. Uh, by the time it's over, they reinvented themselves as top Austrian intellectuals. And they were pushing for the ideas of what, we, what at that time was called the modern state, as I tried to explain yesterday, the Reichstag. It was the government, you know, controls everything for the benefit of the people. You are too dumb to know what's good for you. Therefore, I want to take away your gun, to use the modern terminology. You are too dumb to know what's good for you. Therefore, I want you to wear a mask. These are all controversial issues in America. But in European countries, they're used to this kind of control forever. Okay? Now, the Jews, well, the whole point of the policies of Maria Theresa and her son Joseph II, who I spoke at yesterday, the whole point of their policies was to try to convert the collection of territories which the Habsburg monarchy had been into a European state. So as I showed you yesterday, really it's three different parts that have nothing to do with each other. It was Galicia four. This is the Austrian part where it's all Germans. This is the Bohemian part after they lost Silesia which is Czechs mainly, and a little bit of Germans. This is Hungary, which is a completely different thing. So its own history and own culture. And now you have Galicia, which is Polish, Polish and Ukrainian. So really, they have nothing to do with each other. 
And Be'emis, they didn't. They just happened to be ruled by the Habsburg dynasty. But for their own purposes, which is perfectly understandable, they were trying in the 18th century to figure out how to turn this into one Medina. Right? Now, the philosophy at that time was called Cameralism, which the Cameralist state, uh, this is the most advanced political thought of the middle 18th century. The Cameralist state strives for utility above all. How can the inhabitants contribute to the state and general welfare? Militarily as well as economically. So you want to turn your state into the most efficient use of power possible, and all the economics, and all the politics, and all the rest of it, religious policies all are organized towards that. Not like you have, for example, in America, where the theory is supposed to be that the government's supposed to allow maximum happiness on the part of the inhabitants. See? Uh, although John F. Kennedy used that kind of rhetoric when he said, that's not what your country can do for you, that's what you can do for the country, that's cameralism. And he didn't even mean it, because Kennedy increased the welfare state. He didn't say, what can you do for the country? He said, what can we do for you? Now, uh, prior to all this, the Habsburg lands had been strong Catholic states, and the Jesuits used to be in charge, and they were persecuting always in one degree or another, all the non-Catholics, the Protestants, whoever, which always caused conflicts in such parts of the empires, Hungary and Slovakia. You don't need to know this. There was a lot of Protestants over here, and the Habsburgs and the Protestants here in Slovakia here, there were big wars. Rakotsi, they called Prince Rakotsi. And uh, it caused a lot of heartache. As I told you yesterday, maybe I'll say it today, this part, which Frederick Duguay conquered, was partially conquered because the people were all Protestants. They hated the Austrians, and they welcomed the Prussians in when they came to take over. By then, it was a liberation. You see? Uh, so, as a result, a life formerly had been very tough because of this dominating Jesuit rule. It's very famous. They used to confiscate Sfarim, raid yeshivas. Who gave you the right to own these Hebrew books? They made life pretty difficult, which is why the famous rabbi in Prague, Oppenheimer, who was a multimillionaire, amassed, I think, the largest private Jewish library ever. Of choice stuff, you know, fancy stuff. It's not a world for you and me, the, the high rollers. But it was never, he was a rabbi in Prague, but his library was not in Prague. Because I've read the Jesuits would confiscate it. So his library was at Hanover, which was ruled by England, another part of Germany. <laughs> there you could have books. So it's weird. The guy would have a big library and he would send it there and he really cared about it. It's a famous post that you wrote, Charles and Chivas and things like that, Nishal the David. But and rare manuscripts, really precious manuscripts. This all ended up in um, Cambridge University. It's called the Bodleian Library. They, uh, they, they bought it. You understand? So if you want to see his, stuff. It's been studied by scholars, Arhayom Azev, and many new sfarim of quality have been produced in the 19th and 20th century from his stuff. But he couldn't keep it in Prague because that's the Austrian Empire, and there the Catholics might go spaz and just burn all your books one day for, for fun. Or what they used to do is round up the Hebrew books, put them in a damp and dark cellar, keep them there for a year, and say, now you can have them back when they're all moldy and Junked up. This is how life was lived. Which is why, if you want to be a successful Jew, you had to uh, walk on the tightrope. Nota Behuda always says, when we talk in the Talmud or in the responsa about the guy, I don't mean the Austrians. We don't mean the Christians nowadays. Look at the beginning of Nota Behuda. 
It's not the people who we live. They're much better. We mean the idol worshippers from long ago and all that kind of stuff. Because if you didn't mind your P's and Q's, they won't let you publish it. And if they do, they'll burn them all. The persecution of the Protestants, as they said, facilitated the Prussian conquest of Silesia. As I told Pope Frederick the Great was able to use that. He's Prussian. He's a um, Protestant. So very reluctantly, very reluctantly, the Empress Maria Theresa came to perceive that persecution of the Protestants was not beneficial to the Cameralist state policies. You're causing a lot of trouble. People get, hate you, cause civil war, civil strife, all kind of a host of problems. But she couldn't bite the bullet. Right? The advisor said, then make religious freedom. She was too much of a Catholic. She, she couldn't do it. You understand? She couldn't do it. She was a very smart person, but she said, I need religious uniformity. You know, she, she couldn't break with the old ways. But her son could, Joseph II, and he did. And they quarreled over this a lot. They had all these famous letters. And he's the one who's going to be mainly in charge of the policy in Galicia. Okay? In 1772, as a result, everything I told you was up to 1772. So in 1772, when the Austrians took over this part of Poland of Galicia, she was therefore not anymore in a mood to crush the Jewish religion in Galicia. She only wanted to bring them under her control. A modern state, she felt, can allow the old autonomy. So we can't have what the Jews had in Poland, which is all these Kehillas like ruled themselves, literally. They could punish, they could fine, they could do all this kind of stuff. In America now, we use this term Sharia law. You understand? And you say, well, we don't want this in a modern country. Well, that's how she told me. I don't want this in a modern country. Well, it wasn't a modern country until you took it over. He said, but I did now. You see? On the other hand, I want to make it clear that from day one, Judaism was an officially tolerated religion in the Austrian Empire. And the Habsburgs never did change that status. So you were allowed to be Jewish. Whatever laws they imposed on the Jews, they did impose similar laws on the Poles and the Ukrainians. So therefore, the Habsburg attitude, because the Jews always complaining. What are you complaining about, you Jews? We're treating you more or less the same way we treat the others. Well, no, this is partially true. I mean, Joseph II kicked all the Jews that tried to kick all the Jews out of the countryside and closed down all the Jews' ownership of bars. That was a blow against what he saw was unproductive labor and part of the Jews, and it was a blow against the nobles who owned the bars that they leased out to the Jews. Well, okay. Meanwhile, you just put like 50,000 people out of a job. What's the plan? And he also said, if you're a Beitel Yud, if you're a poor Jew, leave the country. And so thousands of Jews were actually kicked out at the bay at point because he said they're bad for the economy. But in his mind, he's not doing anything wrong, you see? Now, uh, here lies the heart of this fascinating problem. The Jews in Galicia did not want to be treated like the others. They had never been treated like the others in the old Poland. In fact, the Jews had never been treated like everybody else in the entire time of the Gaulists. It is a strange fact, which will probably surprise you, that the Jews had always, or usually, been treated better or lived better than most of the Gaim, even as a relative standard. It's funny, okay? Because wherever they came, they ended up going to business. Now, of course, there was a stratum of poor ones also. But generally speaking, to use modern language, I don't think there was ever a Jewish family anywhere that didn't have some 
non-Jew, peasant girl, this and the other, you know, as a, as a you know, working in the house for them. Because there were people who were much, much poorer. So if there were some people for whom a nickel a week went a long way. As used to be the case in this country, in this city, when I was a little kid. Okay? So, it's funny. The Jews did have a funny existence. They never were equal under the law. They always lived on the basis of specific privileges and the reverse of privileges, I guess you'd say penalties. But when you add it all up, the average Jewish family generally lived better than the average non-Jewish family. It was just interesting. Take a look at this. I actually happened to see this the other day. This is written by the Chobos Olbovos, which is the famous safe written in Spain in the 11th century. It's a classic. And look what he says. Follow with me. He says, oh, when you daven, you should be very grateful to God for all the benefits he gives. He gives you health. He gives you this. He gives you that. And one of the things he gives you, one of the strongest uh, goods that he's bestowed upon people. This is the first part. Uh, now, here's the part I wanted to show you. If a person wants to know, nowadays, in the 11th century in Spain, what's really happening, what you should be grateful for, then look with a clear eye on Dino Bene Umus Beis how we are prospering, or whatever, among the nations in Gaulus. And he's living in Spain, which is Muslims and Christians. And how our stuff were organized. They know we don't believe in their religion. We don't hide it. They know if you're, if you're a Christian, for example, in the Middle Ages, you know the Jews reject Jesus. If you're a Muslim, you know the Jews reject Muhammad. They know it. And yet they don't kill us. And nevertheless, you know, they leave us alone. In spite of the fact we dissent from them, our economic position is pretty much close to theirs when it comes to food and goodies. We're actually better off than them when it comes to matters like war, because I told you Jews were not drafted. Okay? So you end up living a better life in 11th century Spain to your non-Jewish neighbors. And the middle class Goyim and the poor ones and the, the, the peasants in the villages, our middle class is better, is better off than their middle class, and our poor class is better off than their poor class. That's what he's saying. And that's why we just saw in the Tokacha the other day in, in Bechukosai. I won't be Moes then, which he interprets to mean I won't make the Jews as something uh, repulsive, rejected, low. Uh, there's always a lot of people out there that are worse off than you. So this is the way reality was. So basically, the Jews in Galicia, <clears throat> most of them anyway, what they wanted was, don't tamper with the status quo. It's not broke, so don't fix it. The Emperor Joseph II thought in different terms. He thought he was doing the Jews a toiva <clears throat> by granting them equality, but of course, 
in the context of a quid quo quo, quid pro quo. Let the Jews be equal citizens, which they had never been before in their history. But as equal citizens, let them be subject to conscription as well as the other obligations and duties. The Jews were horrified. We were better off without equality and without conscription. Right? We didn't mind our exceptional status. Joseph said, but we will allow the Jews to keep their religion in the army. We really will. And we will try to accommodate within reason Shabbos, Kashrus, and the like. That's what they said. The Jews said, it's terrible anyway. First of all, we don't believe you. And second of all, even if it's true, the Austrian army is the wrong place for a Yid. That's what they said. At the same time that these clashes of values and world outlooks was going on, there happened to develop, <clears throat> the same time, in Christian Austria and Bohemia, uh, a movement to reform the education system. This has to do with internal developments within European, Central European uh, culture. In other words, they're going to switch from a situation where all education is run by the church and by priests to a different model. This had several prominent features. This move to reform education, which was carried out. Um, one of them was taking education away from the Jesuits and putting it under a State Department of Education. Interesting. Mind you, this is a Catholic country. But even within the Catholic country, they're moving what we call anti-clericalism. They're going against clerical control of the education. Number two, you want to introduce for the first time elementary school for all, including girls. Number three, we want to control the curriculum of this elementary school, which will be three or four years, and which will include the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, plus morality. Because you have to teach the kids there's right and wrong, otherwise they'll use their knowledge of reading, writing, arithmetic to attack and cheat and hurt everybody. Okay? Now, this really means that you're going to teach German to the different populations of the Habsburg monarchy, whether they wish it or not. And indeed, that's true. Joseph II said, we'll set up schools everywhere. That's a plus. <clears throat> It'll be elementary, for starters. But what's wrong with having an educated population? At least you can read and write, basic level. You understand? At least you can read and write. And, uh, how should I put it? Uh, Got to be a language, which is a language to convey education. The most efficient ways we have a system of schools that are identical across the empire. Let it be in the German language. Of course, he's German. Understand? So you Hungarians should send your kids to public schools in which they teach everything in German. You Poles should do the same thing. You Italians should do the same thing. You Croats, you Bohemians, you Slovakians, and so forth. It's just for schooling purposes, that's all. You see? Now, um, as you can imagine, people are not going to like that so much. But I'm not interested right now in a detailed history of the Habsburg monarchy, as interesting as that is in the 18th century, how it affects the Jews. This was carried out in Bohemia. There were 70,000 Jews. The king of Bohemia used to be among the largest parts of the Jewish population of the Austrian Empire. Nobody lived in Austria. The, the Catholics there were so strong in the anti-Semitism, you couldn't live Jewish there until like 1850. You understand? All the places you see in the sound of music. Okay? Um, forget that. But Bohemia was a place that always had a Jewish population, although they had those familiar laws in which only one person in the family is allowed to get married. 
And at one point in the 1780s, the Emperor Joseph II ran this down the throat of the Jews in Bohemia, and it worked. He forced them all to send their kids, whether they liked it or not, to elementary schools, in which the language will not be Yiddish, but will be German. Okay? Now, uh, how did he do that? It's a Reichstadt, so he knows it's not, a, it's not a czarist dictatorship in which I said, heck with anybody wants, I'll, I'll send soldiers in by bayonet to do so. If you push, you co-opt, use pressure. And it's very famous that this was carried out in Bohemia because by the time you get to the 1780s, the Jews themselves were willing. They had become more to the left, shall we say. And a very reluctant chief rabbi, the Nodabi Huda, was made an offer he couldn't refuse. It's very famous. This is a very well-known person in the Central European history, Kinderman Valshostein, and he was like the, uh, shall I say, the Noah Webster of Austria, yeah? spreading education in schools, even though he was a Catholic. And he went to the chief rabbi in Prague. He basically did the co-option language. Listen, what do you need to make this happen? Just tell me what you need. Now, nobody didn't want it at all. He says, just tell me what your problems are. He said, well, we don't want to take away time for the Moody Kush. Okay, so we'll make it that it's in the afternoon, you know, at recess time. Uh, we can't trust the teachers. You pick the teachers. I don't like the textbooks. You pick the textbook. You write the textbook. Whatever you want. You see, when you use that kind of language, so what's he going to say at the end of the day? I don't want it no matter what you, he couldn't do it. And so very reluctantly, he had to give his um, okay, and they opened up the first Austrian but Jewish, staffed by Jews, and Shomer Shabbos teachers, because none of them didn't have anything else, and in times when it's not in Cheder, but he, he got their foot in the door. And as time went, they expanded it more. And so, uh, I mean, because none of them couldn't say like this, we're committed in principle to cultural insularity, and we want our children not to know things. <laughs> That's something that... So anyway, thank you. So, um, all, all I'm saying is, they, they got away with it. Now, and by the way, that's the reason that the Jews in Bohemia underwent a very slow process of moving away from Yiddishkeit. Very slow. Very, we did it, remember, when we were in Prague? But it happened, okay? Now, um, Galicia proved to be different than Bohemia. In Galicia, there was no chief rabbi, no rabbinic personality like the Nebuchadnezzar Huda. See, the emperor was smart. Like in America, you say, I guess, I'll go to emotional mindset. If he says it's okay, then how can you say it's no good? But there was nobody like that in Galicia, which actually worked in favor of the Frumis because the radical decentralization that characterized the Orthodox Jewish life means you can't punch anybody. Wherever you punch, it's like a pillow, you know? You can do it to the Hasidim, but then this one, listen, they would do this one, this one. There's nobody in charge. It actually always frustrates bureaucratic attempts to kind of exercise central, top-down pressure on a key decision-maker. This is why when the State of Israel happened in 1948, there was all big fights about whether they should revive the Sanhedrin. And the Mizrahi party and Rabbi Maimon and the others had all these arguments, good arguments, that they should make again a Sanhedrin in the cab once upon a time. And the Haredi rabbi said, I guess, if you'll have a Sanhedrin, then the Israeli government will even put the pressure on them. You see? That's what you, you want a control point. And we don't want that. 
and they don't have it. And so, let's see, does this work? This is happened the other day in Maroon. The police set up the fences and it's Nobody's in charge. That's my point. They don't give a darn. I think you read about it in the papers. What does that mean? Who's in charge? Who can stop? Nobody's in charge. I don't know. Who are you going to arrest? You see what I'm saying? This is a situation in the Galicia. I'm not saying exactly like that, but the lack of anybody being accountable. So the Emperor Joseph II said, listen, take the public schools. You can have your own separate Jewish public school system run and staffed by Jews. It'll be closed on Jewish holidays. You can't ask for better conditions. The Galician Jews didn't want it, period. But Joseph went ahead anyway. And he appointed a guy, Hertz Humberg, to be the czar, the complete director of the entire educational system. Hertz Humberg was a Bohemian Jew, a Western Jew, a very close friend of Moses Mendelssohn, okay? And he shared Mendelssohn's Hashkafas. Mendelssohn was a fundamentalist, and he was a nomian. And at that particular point, he was even into autonomous courts and communities, although he changed that later. But Mendelssohn, by definition, was opposed to cultural insularity. This exactly was the controversial point in his time. He thought it's a good idea for Jews to learn other languages and other things like that. Not at the expense of being observant. Right? And so Hertz Homburg was a close uh, friend of his and came into Galicia with these kind of ideas. In the context of the Berlin Haskalah, of the specifically Mendelssohnian variety, the big change, as I said before, was not fundamental nomism. It was cultural insularity. Okay? The big change, the cultural insularity in its most manifest form of a studied ignorance of European languages, especially the German language. That's why Mendelssohn was such an outlier. Here is the Mendelssohn Bible, which was condemned by the Nodeby Hood and others. Listen, page from the Mendelssohn Chumash. Look closely. This is just a Chumash, okay, like anywhere else. This is the Unculus, like anywhere else. This is Rashi, like anywhere else. This is Mendelssohn's own commentary. Take it from me. There's nothing objectionable there at all. It's like reading the Rahlbog or something like that. It's okay. This is what they didn't like. You're translating the Bible into German using Hebrew letters. You get it? Not this. Obviously not this. And not even this. This. You see? That's why in the 1800s, there were famous rabbis like Bikiv Eger used to read the Mendelssohn Bible because they were interested in this. By that time, they already spoke German, so it was a moot point. But in the 1700s, it was not a moot point. And in Galicia, it's definitely not going to be a moot point. Hertz Homburg really believes that he's helping the Galician Jews. Okay? Hertz Homburg, by the way, wrote part of this. He did uh, Dvarim. Mendelssohn didn't write the whole thing. He did like one, or maybe two, like Gracious and Shmos, and he gave out to others to do Vayikra Bimba Dvarim. I remember Vayikra was uh, Wesley. I'm totally Hertz Wesley. And this guy did Dvarim. Okay. But I'll tell you again, the problem was the translation part. So here we come with a mass state-run project to spread literacy among the Jewish masses, which in America, you say, what's wrong with literacy? I'm telling you, in Galicia, especially in the 1700s and 1800s, it was a hot-button issue, even though it seems funny to us today, because I'm giving this talk in English. America, this is a moot point. In America, everybody speaks English. 
or most, right? Well, there are, you know, Satmar or something like that will be against English. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you're living in the Morris. He says, go to Square Town and you know, talk English. The, uh, but if you tell me you're not Jewish, I'll be okay. <laughs> now, Hamburg really believes he's helping the, the Galician Jews, who, in his opinion, are too primitive and too fanatic to appreciate what he's offering. He did not understand, or he didn't want to understand, that the Galicianer masses looked at things differently. They had their own point of view. After all, Hamburg said, what's wrong with knowing German? And if the parents and the rabbis disapprove, too bad for them. As a result, they utterly distrust him, even though he personally was a Shemr Shabbos. They think he's like open orthodox today, which to them would be like kefira, just as open orthodox is considered kefira in the uh, Haredi communities. Rabbi Oberstein can give a talk on that. Uh, though the open orthodox would say like this, no, we're the only sane Orthodox. That's what Hertz Hamburg would say. You guys are insane Orthodox. We're sane Orthodox. We're not outliers. So the same kind of fights, okay? And the Galician masses looked at things differently, okay? Uh, I'm sorry. In the beginning, he tries diplomacy, emphasizing he's not going to go against the haters. He's going to do the same thing in the hours when they're off. But when faced with passive resistance, he calls in the police and the authorities. Naturally, this confirmed this image as a traitor, a miser, and all the rest of it. Because you're trying to enforce the norms by the use of the police power. Okay? Now, Hertz Homburg established 100 Jewish schools, maybe more, and a teacher's college to produce teachers as one does for his public school system in Lemberg, the very heart of Galicia. That's the normal European way. Right? You have what they used to call normal schools, remember, teachers' colleges. The teachers, by the way, were outsiders, mostly Bohemian and Moravian open Orthodox types, which made them hostile to the haters, despite the fact that they claimed not to be hostile. You know, it goes in class, you can't help those snide remarks. The rabbis and company tried to ignore Hamburg and his team, which only got him more angry and confirmed their backwardness to him. And so you had a situation where the couple's not talking to each other, you see? Worst of all, how is this school system to be funded? Who pays for it all? That's where you get those candle taxes that we saw yesterday. So every time a poor woman or anybody pays extra money because they have a yard site, damn those schools. You see? You know, they're, they're, they're killing my pocket. And I don't even believe in that stuff. Okay. Naturally, this makes the man and his schools really hated because they become identifiable, identical with the hated taxes. The whole episode, which is very interesting and is often studied in modern, uh, by modern Jewish historians, is a harbinger of Jewish modernity, one of whose most prominent features, sadly, is radically different hashkafas among different sets of Jews and a resulting inability to dialogue which is a big thing. I would say that that is a pretty accurate description of Jewish life today in America and around the world. We have different groups of Jews that have nothing to say to each other because they just come from radically different points of view. There's, there's no point in having a conversation, and therefore there aren't any conversations. Um, it starts in the 1780s, 1790s, not only in Galicia, but it's one of the big places where it happens. It should be pointed out that whereas the great majority of parents 
opposed to tampering with the traditional cheder system and all that applies. There was a minority of parents which welcomed it. It's always going to be like that. It was from this minority, with its positive attitudes towards Limudi Chol, it was from this minority that the ranks of the non-Frumis would grow into one wing of Galsinjuri, a left wing. It starts from these guys, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're going to make sure that their children have an even better education, and so forth and so on. Now, I use the word non-Frumi, but that's a negative term, by which I mean it doesn't describe anything, it describes what it's not. A person could be described as a non-Frumi, but be quite religious and observant. These guys were Shabbat Shabbat, as I said before. On the other hand, non-Frumi also includes the misbolili. From their ranks will come some who literally want to assimilate and become totally Polish or German or something like that, which is a quite different element. So look at the continuum that's starting to form for the first time under the Austrian occupation as a harbinger of Jewish modernity, because pretty soon you're going to have the whole gamut in a place like Galicia, which is in the very heart of Eastern Europe. You'll have the extreme from over here, the extreme misbolim, the extreme assimilationists over here. You'll have the more moderate this type, you have the more moderate this type, and this thing in the middle. So the person who's into Gamar, Gamar, Gamar would be over here. The person who says, I'm also interested in Chumash, would be over here. The person who says, I guess Mendelssohn's thing is not a big deal, they're over here. The person who says, this whole Jewish stuff is starting to be stupid, and the person who says, I'm rooting for the German team and not for the Jewish team, that's over there. And that's how it developed. Okay? Now, over the course of the 19th century, the 1800s, this element of Galician Jewry would grow economically and politically as the economy expanded. So in other words, their children will have children and so on and so forth. But they would not be able to win over the masses, especially outside the cities. Because you have to have lived in a town like Krakow or whatever and gone to a regular public school, or a good one, I should say, and maybe even to the university afterwards and get training as a doctor or a lawyer or something like that and have a very little Jewish education and grow up with a completely different experience of what it means to be Jewish in Poland, in Galicia, than the Jews who live a block away in a Hasidic or something like that. That would be very characteristic of the Galician or Jewish phenomenon that in the same town you have very different types living side by side. Very different types. Now, um, meanwhile, what happened... I was, let me say this the last point, as we'll see. This is mainly true of cities, bigger towns. I wish there were about a dozen. Obviously, there's Lemberg and Krakow, there's Tarnopol, uh, I don't know, uh, Tarnov. You know, they, they had such, such places. Most of the places were very small villages. That's where the Hasidim rocked. That's a different situation. See, you go to a Hasidic village or a small village in Galicia, usually dominated by some Hasidic group or another, or more often two or three fighting turf wars, uh, and no time for public school, you know, that sort of thing. What happened to the school system is a very interesting outcome. It's a function of the history of the Habsburg Empire. I was talking about the Emperor Joseph II. He lasted 10 years, 1780-1790, and then he died from heartbreak that everybody didn't appreciate what he was doing. I told you, the guy passed 17,000 laws. In 10 years, though, he's a control freak. 17,000 laws. <coughs> right? Now, when he died, the French Revolution was already on. He was succeeded by, he had no children, he was succeeded by his brother Leopold, who was very smart, but who died after two years. 
Then Leopold's son took over and was there for almost 45 years. Franz I. He was much less talented than any of these guys until he had 43 years of mediocrity. He was very famous. Okay? The guy was mamish, the epitome of mediocrity. There's a giant statue of him in the Hofburg. Who, yeah, you remember that huge statue and there's, oh, he's such a great guy. He was a real jerk. Um, and Franz was the uh, nephew of Marie Antoinette. Does that make sense? He, this guy is the grandson of Maria Theresa. I don't want to confuse you. It's Franz I, his, his father was Leopold, his mother Maria Theresa. Well, Marie Antoinette is her daughter. So they chopped off her head. So that got Austria into a giant war for 25 years almost with France. Franz, Francis, was shocked by the French Revolution and the killing of his aunt. Therefore, Austria was in an almost permanent war against France for the next two decades. Unfortunately for Austria, the leader of the French was Napoleon, who was a military genius. Therefore, I think the Austrians lost like every battle, except the last one. Right? The reason why the last one is by that time, Russia and Prussia came in too. You see? This is the history of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and so what he called over and over again they got beaten and they lost more and more territory here's a very famous picture uh, after Austerlitz I think where again Napoleon has a big victory and he wiped out the Austrian and Russian armies he drove them into the ice and then bombed the ice and they all fell in the river in the middle of uh, Moravia and the next day he came to meet Napoleon and said oh, look I surrender you know what, what are the terms and he took away this promise that promise and after the 1809 war, when he lost like the fourth or fifth time, he gave his daughter in marriage to Napoleon. That's Marie Louise. You know, that way Napoleon got believed he got instant legitimacy. Because my wife will be a Habsburg, so my children will be, you know, hoity-toity. Because of all these wars, the national finances in the Austrian Empire were disastrous, and there were repeated bankruptcies and defaults. Okay? In this context... The state was really harder for money, and the Hertz Hamburg Jewish schools were closed, and the Jewish taxes were sent to the general fund because they needed every penny. So basically, this attempt to introduce a secular education Jewish style collapsed because of the national financial crises and was never revived. From now on, the laws were made that the Jews have to go to Geish elementary schools, in which in Poland means the whole class is Catholic, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Polish, and here's the four, five, or seven Jewish kids. They have to sit on a separate bench. You see? And uh, let's put it this way. Do they in any numbers go? <coughs> no. Are the Hasidic masses now going to send their kids? These are the guys who refuse to send their kids to the Jewish public school system. Are they going to send their kids to the state, Catholic, Polish public school system? Okay. No. Why not? <coughs> here lies another tale. All during this time that I've been talking about, during the reign of Maria Theresa and Joseph II and Leopold, now Franz, all during this time, internal developments were taking place within the, the closed universe of Jewish cultural insularity in Poland. The most important, significant change in the 18th century and early 19th century was the rise of Hasidus, without question. It's a game changer even though it's totally within the Jewish cultural insularity. You see? It's a game changer. The Balshantov, after all, as I tried to say yesterday, 
who died before the Austrians ever showed up, lived in what became Eastern Galicia. So this is where the Gval Shabtav, all the stories hang out, around here. This part, of course, here's Brody, for example, over here somewhere. We have many uh, stories in Brody. Um, so Hasidus is a, what we call an Eastern Galician slash Ukrainian phenomenon. It's not exactly a Polish thing. It spread later into Poland. Uh, and it was all called the Kingdom of Poland. But it's actually a Ukrainian business. Okay? So don't be, I mean, take a look, take a look at this. Here's Me Mezrich. Here's Lvov. And here's Mezrich. So Lvov is in the heart of Galicia. This is just over the border. You know, so the border runs somewhere like this. So Magan Mezrich is, lives about 10 miles away from the, what would become the Galician border, although he also died just before 1772, early in the year before the Austrians took over. So what you and I call Hasidus developed its original forms, the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad Mezrish and the Toldus Yaakov Polnoya, Toldus Yaakov Yosef, in the old world of cultural insularity, when the kingdom of Poland didn't know what was going among Jews and didn't care. But now it's a new world, okay? So... So original Hasidism was a kind of Galicianer phenomenon, and therefore it's only natural that after 1772 it would spread. This is famously associated with the Neomelamelech, who was in Galicia. He's not the only one, but you've heard of him, and he had a big following. To this day, if you're a Galicianer Hasid, or under their norms, you want to have a copy of the Neomelamelech in your house that protects you against a fire. Never heard that? We heard that. Now, on the other hand, Galicia also had a lot of misnagdom, contrary to popular belief. The Clois of Brody, which we would call the number one kolel in the world, was very elitist and very high-class learning, both in Nigla and Eastern. It was hard to get in. It was very rigorous. And even the Austrians called it the Polish Sorbonne. <laughs> no, as they heard about the high level of Talmudic learning, even though they didn't know what Talmudic learning was. These are the guys who excommunicated the Hasidim. In the famous original excommunication against the Hasidic movement of 1772, the excommunication was issued by two cloises, two elite centers of rabbinic learning. One was in Vilna, maybe you've heard of the guy, Vilna Gaon, and the other one was the opposite end of Poland, in Brody, which is almost near the capital of Galicia. And that's called, now the reason I had to know to be who there, He's maybe their most famous graduate. But we've all heard of nobody else. Basically, it was a 10-year program. You got stipends that you didn't have to work for a living, but you were expected literally to live in the base medish 24 hours a day. You only came home for Shabbos. So it was a semi-monastic existence. And these guys learned up a storm, and a lot of them became big, these big gadolim and brody. So what I'm trying to say is like this. There's a lot of misnagdom over there also, and many of the stories of the Shiv Chayabesh, the early stories of Baal Shem Tov, are these in, which are told from a Hasidic perspective. The Shiv Chayabesh was published by Lubavitch about 50 years after the death of Baal Shem Tov, and they're always putting you know, their spin on it. Uh, here you can read is the, uh, the, the Cloys by Brody. Uh, you can read it by yourself. Okay? But the Misnagdim in Galicia did not develop along the intense lines of their Litvak, of their Lithuanian counterparts. There was no Galicianer Vilnagon, who was extreme, as you know. He said the Hasidus is a kind of a Vodizara, and this and that and the other. 
Oh my goodness. He says they're responsible for the murder of babies. Boy. Accordingly, things developed differently than in Lithuania. In Lithuania, the feelings were so strong that there, the Misnagdun kind of won. The whole province of Lithuania, for the most part, remained non-Hasidic. In Galicia, by, example, by contrast, both Hasidim and Misnagdun lived everywhere side by side, whether they liked it or not, in roughly equal quant, uh, numbers. And therefore, they simply had to you know, learn how to live with people you don't like. And that's what it was. So again, that's very typically Galician. But just because you're a Galician, it does not necessarily mean your family was Hasidic, contrary to popular belief. Now, uh, this is how it went. Both sides, the Misnagdim and the Hasidim, unlike in Lithuania, neither of them liked to bring in the Goyim. They didn't want to appeal to the Gentile authorities in Galicia. So they had to develop a culture of mutual quarreling in the context of live and let live. So in all the towns, they were always, every time there's some position up for grabs, they got to hire a new shochet, new shamas, new rabbi, certainly, a dayan, anything like that. It's always a fight. The Hasidim will try to put their guy in. It's not going to put their guy in. Dirty politics all around. A good time was had by all. Okay? A good time was had by all. Now, in addition to that, the Hasidim themselves have plenty of turf wars which rabbi should have the influence in this town or not. So even if a town was all Hasidic, next time there's a Sheikhid, should he be a Belzer or a Sanzer? You know what I'm saying? Next time there's a job open for a Dayan or, or this, you know, to use modern equivalent, who gets to be a new teacher in TA? There's a job in there, Israel. There's a job over here. This group versus this group. This is how Jewish life was lived with all the mutual quarreling and all the rest of it down till Hitler, Okay. The Hasidim, as we know, did build empires. They had plenty of turf wars in their own. This is the Belzer Shoal, Belzer Rebbe. Look how many people it held. Can you, can you tell me you've heard of a shoal with 5,000 seats? <laughs> and he filled them. And those of us who've ever been in Belzer and Yerushalayim, they're, they're more or less the same, aren't they? It's a $50 million building at that time. And how many people, you know, zillions, you see? So in other words, he was planning a mass business. Okay? There were many other dynasties and empires, all of them with scholarly intellectual bent, including a lot of Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. So what's interesting, Galicia and Poland in general, this is well known among historians of Hasidus, is that whereas in the Ukraine, farther to the east, there were a lot of popular rebbeis and movements which didn't place great emphasis on what we would call yeshiva learning, Talmudic scholarship, all the rest of it. More into other forms, you know, the tishes, the Torah, as they call it, Hasidic customs, the folkways. When they moved into Poland proper, like Galicia and like central Poland, they ain't got no respect over there, like Rodney Dangerfield, unless you know how to learn. And so the Hasidic movements, as they move into Poland, become much more Talmudic. And that's why you and I have heard the Chedush Rim, the Devrachanya, there was Hasidic rabbis who could put the Litvaks to shame. You see, because that's what developed. Remember, if you're moving to a place like Lemberg, if you're moving to a place like Krakow, which the Hasidim did invade, this goes back to the Ramah, to the Marshal, the famous scholars of yesteryear. And so you can't just impress anybody unless you got the goods, unless you got the Schara. So on the other hand, Hasidus is a new phenomenon. And each Rebbe tried to 
expand as much as possible. It didn't get exactly violent, except a little bit. Mostly not. But they're always fighting for turf war battles. He wants his dynasty to roll over here. This one to roll over here. And, you know, it's up to the hoi polloi, the masses. Are you going to go for Rosh Hashanah to this one? Are going to go to that one? And we all know, I mean, you, if you don't know, you'll know now. Hasidus was very powerful and very present in Galicia. Okay? Now, in terms of sociology and politics, Hasidism is so constituted that it was the only politically organized group among Jews. That's very interesting. And that's true down till today, pretty much. Right? Now the Litvish are trying to copy that to some degree, but they're not good at it. To put it in simple terms, you know and I know, if somebody's running for governor in New York or Hillary Clinton, she's going to go to Satmar. Why? The guy can deliver 20,000 votes. And if you go to Square Town, it's so-and-so many thousand. But the guy at the top gives the orders and they all vote for it. When you command those kind of numbers, it's a power. And in the context of the Jewish civil wars that we're talking about, if they set up a public school over here and the Rebbe said nobody send their kids to school, nobody send their kids to school to have that discipline. You don't have like in the Lisbon community when somebody says, like I think it's not a bad idea. But this rabbi said, what does he know? You know? Well, that's always the norm in Jewish history. Did Moshe Rabbeinu say things that people rolled over? He was not a Hasidic rabbi. Moshe Rabbeinu said all kinds of things, and the Chumash told the people didn't listen, but they went the opposite. And that's the old model. The Hasidic movement, as we all know, as Simon says, that's the definition of it. Therefore, that gives you, in terms of internal Jewish politics, a power. If you have 10 maskil in the town, and they're trying to get the government to change this, that, and the other, you can mobilize, just at a word, a whole bunch of people who will do what you tell them. And I repeat, I'm not talking about violence over here, but just the numbers can uh, lead to a force. And let me say this, the Austrian, it's very interesting what happened in terms of the Austrians, because Hasidic policy, is the politics was entirely within the world of cultural insularity. They were fighting other Jews. There was zero challenge to the Habsburgs. That's not the Hasidic agenda at all, right? They're not like the Poles who are trying to revolt and, re and rebuild Poland, or the Ukrainians trying to break away and build a new country in Poland. The Hasidic weren't doing none of that. They say, long live the Kaiser, and now let's get these muscular or something like that, you see? That's that, that. So the Austrians are very aware of that. And since they realize from their point of view, the whole Hasidic movement is zero political, wait a minute, say, the heck with them. Leave them alone. Why take them off? Isn't that funny? It's, it's, it's strange. This apolitical aspect was picked up pretty darn quick by the Austrian officials. As a result, from the beginning, the Austrian officials, who were the bosses, declined to move against Hasidism. As long as it was a legitimate right of traditional Judaism, it should enjoy the same rights and same obligations and discriminations as everyone else. If anybody, like the Moschilim, as we shall see, started agitating against Hasidism, the Austrians closed it down. There's a very famous incident where a Litvish guy, Yisrael Lobel, came on a, a Billy Graham crusade into Galicia to mobilize the masses against the Hasidim. The Hasidim just called the police. They said, some guy here is a troublemaker trying to cause trouble. That guy was out <laughs> on the next train or whatever, the next stagecoach out. He said, we don't need nobody that's causing this kind of trouble. Just shut up. So life was funny in that particular way. Um, 
the savvy Hasidim quickly perceived that the Austrians were conflicted towards them and would always remain so. On the one hand, the Austrians couldn't help hoping the Hasidim would westernize. After all, they don't like the way they look. They talk. It's echi, the turnoff. This remained the permanent feature of Austrian attitudes. It couldn't help to be. On the other hand, the Austrians realized that unlike the Poles and the Ruthenians, the Hasidim are, are no threat, maybe the opposite. They're a loyal group to the government. And that's what counted for more than anything else in the eyes of the Emperor Franz and his successors. Because he had a lot of trouble with local nationalisms and people want to r- rise up against them. Every once in a while they had to deal with that. You see the Jews, they're just there. Maybe they're ugly looking. You know, maybe I wish they didn't look so outlandish, all the rest of it. They ain't bothering nobody. You see? It's not like they moved to a neighborhood, next thing you know, you've got broken windows and stolen bicycles and crime. And none of, no, I'm serious. It's none of that. You see? They're just icky. So therefore, their attitude was much more benign. You understand? No, I'm, it's a very important point. I say we're not associated with crime. Okay? Now, as a result, as a result, um, the Austrians, uh, a very funny history developed. I call it a funny triangle. All throughout the 19th century, you have the Hasidim battling the Maskilim, and the guys who control everything are the Austrians. And the question is, which way will they tilt? Each side is appealing to these guys to help them and tilt the triangle their way. The funny thing is, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, the Austrians sided with them, which is strange. Had it been the Russian Empire, Nicholas I, Alexander II, would be the other way around. The Russian government side with them. See? The Austrian government. And I say it again, not because the Austrians love the Hasidim, because of the reasons I just laid out. Um, so on the, on the one hand, a group of Galicianer Maskilim did evolve, who genuinely, yeah, who genuinely opposed Judaic coercion and cultural insularity. You had people like this, because that's who, uh, tomorrow I'll try to explain, that's who the Maskilim were. They're opposed to cultural insularity. They're opposed to um, religious coercion. They're not opposed to fundamentalism. They're not opposed to nomianism. At least that's what they claimed. At the same time, there's a very large set of Hasidic movements involved with large followings. So small numbers of Maskilim in a lot of places, large numbers of Hasidim, Maskilim and large numbers of Hasidim in a lot of places. There had to be a clash, at least on intellectual or an ideational clash. In the remaining few minutes, let me start with the Maskilim, which are a very interesting group. Actually, on second thought, let's start with them tomorrow. <laughs> I hear a little rain, so let's call it a night. Good night. Yeah, does anybody want to stay for my... For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.